Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. Today we are talking the 1977 Japanese film Hasu, also known as House. I am the proud, happy mother of a little girl who is now one month and a day old. So settling into newborn parenthood again, uh, my older child, Finn, as you all know, is 14 now uh, and starting high school. So this is really interesting going through it all again this much later. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and yeah. uh, how is it? different well things are definitely more difficult this time around not just because i am 14 years older i was 20 when finn was born and now at 35 uh it's <laughs> it's uh taking more of a toll that i remember but also the rules have changed um when Finn was little, they told you not to fall asleep with the child in your bed because they would never learn to sleep on their own. And um, so they, you know, they said it's just not in your best interest. But now it's more like if the child sleeps anywhere other than on a flat crib mattress with no blankets, no stuffies, nothing. If they sleep anywhere else, you will kill them. They'll die and it's your fault and you're a bad mom. <laughs> so... so <laughs> I, I don't get this. Like humans have been having children for millions of years. How can the rules change in 14 years? Well, basically like 14 years ago, SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, they didn't really know what was causing it. It just seemed like mysteriously one in 7,000 babies was dying and they, and seemingly healthy, but didn't know what had happened. And now they've determined it's because of suffocation and the babies apparently suffocate very easily. So, um, so your chances are one in, you know, several thousand of this happening, but that's, those odds aren't great act to be honest. So I get it, but it means that my husband and I are basically awake all night, one of us or the other. And he's been taking the shift until about two or 3 a.m. And then I'm awake every day starting at two or 3 a.m. So I've been catching up on a lot of movies and trashy TV. It's been it's been good for that, but not so great for the sleep. That's weird that sudden infant death syndrome, it took them this long to figure out it was just suffocation. Like that seems like, did they not do autopsies? Like, is that not like well i think they knew that the kids were dying because they stopped breathing but i think they thought it was like random or you know not something that could be explained and now they've figured out like oh it's because like a blanket fell over their face or the parent rolled over on top of them or you know like there there are lots of ways you could suffocate a baby this is such a cheerful subject okay well let me <laughs> so... switch from suffocating babies uh, let's talk fictional murders so i recently saw a couple of murder mystery movies okay one that i enjoyed and one that i didn't enjoy as much one was a haunting in venice which hmm. is the 
new Agatha Christie film by Kenneth Branagh. I think it's his third one. He did mm-hmm. Murder on the Orient Express and he did Death on the Nile. Both of those were just, eh, okay. Didn't bowl me over. This is the probably the best of the three so far, which is, I think, an adaptation of like a Halloween story. I forget. I forget what the actual story was called. A loose adaptation is my understanding. Yeah, but it's good. It's a good Halloween mystery. If you have someone who like doesn't like scary stuff and wants to see something Halloweenish, this would be a good choice. Sounds like that's more up my alley. I like I'll watch a horror movie every now and then, but it's not my favorite genre. To avoid any spoilers, since it's a mystery, I will end there. The other thing I saw was an interactive play slash movie called Frogman. I was not as happy with this one because uh, I, all right, the way it works is you, you go in and there are Oculus headsets, which at various points during the story you put on. The rest of the time it is a police interrogation performed by two actors right in front of you. They had told everyone to show up a half an hour early, et cetera, et cetera. When I got there, it turns out that uh, they were still charging the Oculus headsets up to 10 minutes before the show started. And this was a bad sign. So we walked in, we, we saw this film. There were the, the sort of audio headset and the Oculus headset, um, it was kind of a lot to like get on and off quickly between things. But the story was interesting, although I don't know if it completely played fair as a mystery. I don't know if all the clues were given to you. But the reason I don't know is because in the last several minutes, when we get down to the reveal or whatever, and I thought maybe this was done intentionally, I was just so confused. My headset went blue and it said, raise your hand and an usher will come. And so I'm sitting there with my hand raised, like with this headset on, seeing nothing but blue and um, nobody ever comes and I hear clapping. And so I pull off the headset and the thing and everybody's clapping and the the actors have left the stage. So I missed the ending. (laughs) What happened was the Oculus headset died or whatever, ran out of charge, something like that, you know. For a mystery, that really sucks. So I was really unhappy about that part. And I can't really officially judge this thing because I don't know how it ends. (laughs) (laughs) So I saw this virtually during the pandemic. So not in 3D, but I saw kind of a simulation of it where I was watching a recording of the performers and seeing the virtual reality segments as best as you can represent them on a flat screen. And I confess I had the same reaction and I don't know why my colleagues were excited to bring this here because it seemed like they were excited about it for the wrong reasons. Like they said, the the footage of the coral reefs is astonishing. And there's this whole environmentalist component. And I'm like, yeah, but at the heart of it, it's like an investigative thriller that doesn't deliver on that level. And it's really hard for to make an argument that it's 
about the environmental thing when the whole plot is this investigation. Yeah. And tickets are like three times more expensive than a regular film. So it's not, it's not cheap, you know? Yeah. I have been a fan of this kind of technology, but like the first VR headset and virtual reality experience was created in 1969. It just feels like this technology has been very slow to develop. Uh, you know, everybody thought it was going to be the big thing in the 80s, and then it was going to be a big thing in the 90s, and then it was going to be the big thing in the 2000s, and then the 2010s, and here we are in the 2020s, and I still don't feel like we've gotten there yet, you know? Well, so my friend uh, Sarah, who uh, is building a company that creates the NPC characters for various games, her sense is that the reason why VR isn't taking off is because it is fundamentally a solo experience. And until either more people are there interacting with other people in the virtual world, or they create experiences where you feel like you're interacting with people, like even if they're NPCs, if you feel like you need to go talk to the bartender in order to find out information for a game you're involved in or a LARP or something, you know, that you need to be able to feel like there's a real interactive component with other, other beings and not just the visuals because the visuals alone are not catching on. Yeah, I can, I can buy that. I mean, I'm, I'm very skeptical when it comes to stuff like this. I like the interactive component, but the visuals alone, like I, I'm not, we've talked about this before. I'm not a huge fan of IMAX films because the visuals don't like oftentimes are mismatched to the experience. Like I don't need to see a courtroom drama where the person's nostril is bigger than my head, you know? Oppenheimer delivered though. I'm still going to stand by that. Uh, even though Oppenheimer is mostly talking, it was amazing in IMAX. You know, I didn't do the Barbenheimer experience, but I did see both of those films separately. And uh, I thought Oppenheimer was excellent. I had one complaint about Barbie though. Oh. Which is that like... I didn't get the whole horse thing. Like that, that part did not make any sense to me because I have dated three women in my life who have owned horses and my mother owned horses and I lived in Kentucky, which is horse country and the field of equestrianism or whatever you want to call it is dominated by women. It's a women thing, like women own horses, how this is supposed to be like a man thing in this movie. I just don't get, it just makes no sense to me. You know, that's that part is just something that I also felt like this doesn't look like any man I know, but I wonder if some of it is that the Barbie world is kind of mentally connected to the world of the people playing with the Barbies. So in some ways, it's almost like a woman's idea of what a man would want with that power, like sort of like. That there is sort of a deliberate, like, if I were an eight-year-old girl playing Barbies and, like, suddenly Ken was taking over, like, 
what would what would an eight-year-old girl think Ken would be excited about? Like, oh, horses. Like that's that's a thing that guys also would be. I don't know. This I'm okay. just this this is my freewheeling <laughs> off the cuff interpretation, but I agree with you. That part felt weird too. Okay. Well, both Barbie and Oppenheimer are tied to late 40s, early 50s Japan. So <laughs> let's transition to Great a film segue. <laughs> <laughs> that also has its roots in the end of World War II and Japan. Haosu. So uh, this film came out in 1977, the same year that uh, Star Wars came out. Let me remind you before we get into this. So <laughs> keep that in, your, in the back of your mind. Star Wars came out this year. Haosu. Let's talk about 1977. In January of 1977, January 20th to be exact, uh, Jimmy Carter becomes the 39th president of the United States. He's sworn in. February 3rd, 1977, in northern Japan, there is a blizzard that causes many homes to collapse, killing 31 people from uh, snowfall on top of roofs collapsing. But a much bigger disaster happens in March. March 27th, the Tenerife disaster happens. It's a collision between Pan Am's Boeing 747 and uh, KLM 747 at the Canary Islands, Tenerife to be exact, 583 people die and it's the deadliest accident in aviation history. Speaking of horses, <laughs> April 2nd at the uh, Grand National at Aintree Racecourse in the UK, the horse Red Rum wins for the third time, which is a record. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Red Rum. I threw this in here because I drove by this spot every day for years. May 28th, the Beverly Hills Supper Club in Southgate, Kentucky is engulfed in fire and 165 are, are killed. June 10th, 1977, the first Apple II computers go on sale. And July 30th of 1977, the film Haosu opens in Japan. Yes. And I have to say, I kind of wish that I had done the behind the scenes research before watching the film, because I'm not going to say it makes more sense, but I definitely would have appreciated the choices more knowing where it was coming from i'll be curious for those of you listening how your opinion fares did you want to know all this information going in or would you rather go with a clean slate so the film was created by toho studios um, which is the same folks that brought all of kurosawa's and ozu's films so it's a great house for japanese cinema and and godzilla all the and Godzilla, Godzilla films. yes, and all the Godzilla <laughs> films. So it's it's not just slow talky dramas, but they've gotten into a slow talky drama rut, insofar as you can call Seven Samurai and Hidden Fortress and those samurai films talky dramas. But people were not going to the movies the same way they were. They were losing their young audiences. 
And the young people were in particular just seeing a ton of American films and not Japanese films. And so Toho Studios wanted to change that. And they were looking at the cinema landscape, trying to figure out what's going to bring the young people back. And they looked over at the U.S. and said, you know what's doing really well over there? Jaws. Jaws is doing really well in, in the box office. Let's make Jaws, but for Japan. Oh, shark meter. The shark meter. <laughs> anyway, so they found this filmmaker Obayashi, who was mostly known for commercials, and asked him to pitch an idea for a film that was going to be action heavy, thrilling, like Jaws. And he asked his 11 year old daughter to describe what she was afraid of to help get his creative juices going. And she began to list off a series of things that, of course, an 11 year old would be frightened of, like a piano eating your fingers or your reflection in a mirror reaching out and killing you. And um, she was afraid of the well at her grandmother's house. And all of these things seemed to find a way into the film. It didn't make a lot of sense on paper and they weren't sure who they were going to get to direct it. So Toho actually shelved the project for two years. They had a rule at the time that you had to be on staff at Toho in order to direct a picture. So Obayashi was not supposed to be able to direct the film, but he spent that two years promoting the hell out of it. He made swag. He commissioned a manga. He went on the radio and he continued to drum up enthusiasm for the project until finally Toho decided to give it to him. All the actors were basically amateurs and Obayashi found that he had trouble directing them using words. So he started playing the film's soundtrack on set to get them in the right headspace. The soundtrack for the film was part of this buildup and actually was released before the film's production even began, which is nuts. It's also nuts that the film was shot without a storyboard, which once you see it and see the animation and special effects in the film to imagine how this came together without a storyboard is really incredible. One of the things about the film, though, the Obayashi in an interview said that in terms of what he was crafting every time he had to make an artistic decision he thought what would kurosawa do and then he did the opposite of that thing <laughs> okay okay now this explains a lot <laughs> it doesn't it explains so much because um the film has this very subversive self-aware quality which if you go into it thinking that the guy is trying to make a film as good as a kurosawa film then you're going to be like, what are you doing, man? But if you know he's intentionally trying to make not that film, suddenly you can really appreciate the choices he's making. Like he deliberately wanted the special effects to look like a child had done them because it sort of creates this, you know, bonkers atmosphere and you're more aware of the effects. You're not drawn into this film. You are definitely watching it from the outside and, and aware that you're watching it from the outside. And this apparently, according to Obayashi, was all intentional. As you can bet, there was a very fun backstage atmosphere. Folks at Toho were like, I'm having a great time. No idea what the film is about. No idea where this is going. Film turned out to be a commercial success among the youth in Japan, despite negative critical reviews there. 
but it was appreciated by U.S. critics and gained a cult following after its U.S. release in 2009. There had been a handful of screenings in the U.S. in 1977 when it came out, but it was really in 2009 that the film got this cult status. And now we we hope that you will join the cult. <laughs> so it opens, there's two best friends, Fantasy and Gorgeous. And at first, I wasn't sure if those names were like English translations of a Japanese Japanese girl's names, or if this is some kind of like G.I. Joe Spice Girls kind of a thing where there's scary spice and, you know, and it's it's more that. Yeah, <laughs> which we'll, we'll find out. <laughs> And actually, like, he deliberately chose an English language title because he thought it would be cooler if, you know, the title was in a foreign language. So, I mean, Haozu is, and please, like, stab me for how I can't say anything in Japanese, but it is meant to be the English word house. So the these names of the characters totally make sense. Fantasy and gorgeous. It's the last day before summer break. So there's this extended scene at school where they all talk about what they're going to do over their summer break and they're super excited for this getting away with their teacher Mr. Togo who apparently is super hot and they're all into this guy (laughs) well you're laughing (laughs) I'm laughing because it's a it's a very weird feeling when when they set this up you know like there's this sort of vague creepiness about how young these girls are and how they are continually sexualized throughout the film just starting even here (laughs) well hang on hang on we need to be culturally sensitive here a little bit because recently and by recently i mean this summer a few months ago the age of consent in japan was raised to 16 wow okay for the previous century it had been at its its previous age 13 oh god (laughs) so so literally this year in 2023 when we're recording this podcast and not even that long ago like 10 12 weeks ago it was finally raised to age 16. So these girls, I think, are supposed to be closer to 18, you know, 17, 18. Um, Yeah, they're like juniors or seniors, something like that. So that's long in the tooth, (laughs) I guess, by by the standards of the day. But um, okay, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, never mind. I can't, I can't, I I tried. and, And just to be clear, like, one of the things that I found that were like that I wish that I had known the notes before going in is watching the film without the background. I had this weird sense of like, this is very uncomfortable that these teenage girls are being shown this way. And the director seems like a real creep. And now knowing that actually the film is all like that he collaborated with his 11 year old daughter to make the film. Like now I'm like, Oh, okay. So it's not that he was trying to do something artsy and that there was this like weird darker side. It was sort of more like 
no, he seemed, he must've been pretty self-aware and, and, you know, if, if this is coming out of his daughter's sense of what to be afraid of, that really kind of changes it for me in terms of like how creepy or not creepy this kind of stuff is anyway. Well, I I digress. (laughs) Well, I just, I contrast it with Barbie. Barbie like is supposed to be also girl fantasy. Like they're playing with Barbies and that's what defines the Barbie world. Right. But yet sexuality has like no place there. It's like, they have no idea what that is. Whenever Ken comes over, like he wants to spend the night, but they don't know why, you know, they can't come up with a reason for that and decide that, Oh, it's girls night. It's girls night every night. You know, I don't know. I don't, I have no idea what, you know, an 11 year old girl fantasizes about. So I, I don't know, but Mr. Togo w- surprised me because yeah. that is, does not seem like an 11 year old girl's fantasy guy. You know? No, no, not at all. He, uh, he's kind of goofy and drives a dune buggy. He reminds me a little of Gilligan from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> Yes, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Since the last day before summer break, Gorgeous goes home to her father, who apparently is a film composer. He mentions that he just got back from Italy, where Leone said that his music was even better than Morricone's. So (laughs) he was working on spaghetti westerns and... I wish they hadn't put that in there because it just served to underscore how much I hated the actual score of this movie. I'm like, why couldn't they have gotten Gorgeous's dad to score this film? Okay. Um, <laughs> About that. <laughs> when we were watching that, um, we I was watch I watched it with Rob. God love him. Uh he suffered through this with me. Um, he said that the music sounds like the graduation song and the black parade. <laughs> <laughs> Her father then drops this bombshell like this woman, Ryoko, is going to be spending the summer with them. She was not going to spend the summer with her friend. She was going to go spend the summer with her dad. And now it turns out her dad and Ryoko, which is a like, meet your new mom moment. (laughs) With the craziest sunset ever in the background. Like the sky is nuts on fire, beautiful painting and like totally out of place. (laughs) So... Ryoka shows up and she's dressed all in white. And I wanted to call attention to this because white throughout the Far East, China, Japan, Southeast Asia, symbolizes death. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that they show her dressed all in white uh, when she shows up. She's apparently a jewelry designer. Gorgeous is not happy about this. And she pines for the first night about it. And then... She decides that instead she's just going to go with all her friends to this inn when somehow due to a pregnancy or something, Togo's family can't host them at this inn. And so Gorgeous volunteers her aunt, who she's not seen since she was a child, Mm -hmm. her aunt's house, which was her grandmother's house, 
until her grandmother died and then her aunt inherited it. They also learn a little bit of background about the aunt while they're traveling by magic school bus. (laughs) (laughs) I gotta say that this is... Oh, the worst parts of the 70s inherited from the late 60s. I mean, there's a lot of hippy-dippy crap going on in this. Okay, Go ahead. all right. This is where, having watched it without reading about the production behind the scenes, I definitely had the same opinion when I saw it the first time of just like, this is unbearable. Please, please let me out of this hell. And then <laughs> reading about it, it sounds more like the director made these choices deliberately, like he had been told to kind of emulate that 60s, 70s style. And then instead he dialed it up to 12 and was <laughs> like, all right, yeah, like we're going to do this. But in such an annoying, obvious way that it draws your attention to it and you're maybe supposed to be critical or kind of you're meant to laugh at it. You're You're meant to find it ridiculous listener imagine a sid and marty croft horror film and that's what we're we're talking about here (laughs) i mean complete with animations and weird matte painted backgrounds that move and yeah but there's an interesting component to this where gorgeous is recounting her aunt's story it's done almost like in the style of an old-timey film and all of the girls are cast in it or or show up in this kind of like filmy retelling of how the aunt was married and her husband died in world war ii we'll get back to that later and that she's been living alone ever since is is what we are supposed to understand right and amidst all this they make friends with or take this white cat with them Again, Mm -hmm. there's that white symbolism. This long-haired white cat, Blanche. I don't know that I would have taken that cat with me, but (laughs) they decide this cat is the greatest thing ever. (laughs) This is where things hit an all-time low for me in this film because Mr. Togo falls down some stairs, gets his butt stuck in a bucket, and calls them and lets them know he'll join them later. Mm Mm-hmm. This is some really, really corny-ass slapstick that happens there and really bad hippie music and the magic school bus drops them off and then they don't know where to go and the cat like turns its head and they're like, okay, that's the way we must go because the cat is telling us to go that way. Yeah, I think the cat more or less was like, yeah, you're mine now. And that was it. I don't think they had a choice into whether or not they were going to keep that cat because that cat was apparently like some sort of weird spirit guide that was leading them to their demise. They have no problem breaking fourth wall in this film. (laughs) One of the more helpful items here is that they freeze frame on each of the characters and we get their name and we find out that the characters here are Melody, Fantasy, Prof, Sweet, Kung Fu, Mac, and Gorgeous. So those are our Spice Girls, basically. We get, like, Melody is the music-talented one, and Fantasy is, well, we already talked about Fantasy and Gorgeous. Prof is sort of the smart one. Who wears glasses, because the smart one always wears glasses. Yes, yes. 
Yes. And then <laughs> sweet is, of course, the sweet one. Kung Fu knows Kung Fu. Mac is the one that eats all the time. So, yeah, that's that's who we've got. Them plus cat. And the cat leads them literally to grandmother's house over the river and through the woods. Literally. In this case, a bamboo forest to grandmother's house. They go. But first they encounter what I can only describe as Igor, the watermelon man. (laughs) (laughs) So this creepy watermelon man, like, um, I don't know what the point of the scene is, but they stop and talk to him for a while. And then eventually they buy a watermelon from him. Doesn't this seem like one of those classic horror movie things though, of like something creepy to just get you in the sense of, I should be looking out for other creepy things right now. And it's a red herring. Like this guy isn't going to be the ax murderer that comes to get them. No, definitely. That's why I call him Igor, the watermelon man, because he's he's like, (laughs) got the creepy Igor laugh and all that in all honesty the watermelon does play a part later in the film yes they did need to buy a watermelon Chekhov's watermelon (laughs) (laughs) yes Chekhov's watermelon so they get to the creepy mansion and then there's little hints here and there that are I guess little hints not so subtle to me that things aren't normal here like a chandelier that has glass shards suddenly flying all over the place and impaling little lizards and things like that. Right. That should have been their immediate sign. Like, maybe we shouldn't be here. (laughs) Yeah, you would think. But, you know, they, they stay for dinner. Aunt is in a wheelchair. They wheel her in and they make dinner she tells them that the refrigerator's broken, don't use it. So instead, they have to chill the watermelon in a well out back. And you know that that's going to be bad news. They tie this watermelon to a rope and lower it down into a well to chill, which apparently was a regular thing in Japan before refrigeration. So Mac is the one in charge of the watermelon, and the aunt makes not too subtle comments about how she looks tasty and such. Anyway, they have dinner. After dinner, they go to grab dessert, which is this watermelon, and they send out which one goes looking for her. Mac does. And fantasy goes looking for Mac. Yeah. Yeah. So did you notice there were several times, okay, so Mac was the one who ate all the time, which used to be a thing where there was always like a character in cartoons and stuff growing up where somebody just always had a huge appetite and they were always eating and they were always the quote unquote fat one. And uh, they do that here in this movie too. And girlfriend is not even fat. She's not even thicker than the rest of the girls. They were the comic relief. I wouldn't say they were always fat because like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo was always eating and he was bone skinny. And so was Scooby. He, he wasn't a fat dog. He's just great Dane. (laughs) <laughs> but I think there what you're right. There was always that there's that trope about and it, it happened in a lot of horror films, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was going to say one of the things that I find kind of fun about the film is this sort of proto seven thing that's going on, that the characters are all killed by the thing that defines them or that they're good at. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily sins for all of them. like. I don't think knowing Kung Fu is a sin, but 
kung fu is defeated in battle more or less and Mm -hmm. we'll get to the other and then there were none (laughs) eliminations but mac i i think it's implied that they all eat her that somehow mac has transformed into the watermelon and that they've all eaten mac oh did i get that right yeah i think that's that's true because well, first of all, Mac goes to get the watermelon and she's not seen from again. So Fantasy goes out looking for her mm-hmm. and pulls up what she thinks is the watermelon. But it turns out to be this decapitated head of Mac, which then floats in the air and ends up biting her on the ass. I was really hoping you would bring that up. <laughs> yeah. It's like she's trying to eat her, but then they end up convincing her it's just a watermelon. They go out and they look and they're under the spell of the cat thinking that it's really a watermelon and they all eat it. And then like at one point, one of the girls goes, they're pumping water and she fills a glass with water and she turns her head and doesn't look while it fills up with this blood red liquid and she drinks it. Yeah. So I think the implication is that they ate and drank Mac instead of a watermelon. Well, yeah. And even the aunt was like looking at one of the girls. I can't remember which one right now, but she was looking at one of the girls and there was an eyeball in her mouth. Yes. And she was doing that kind of sneaky, like, see what I got? (laughs) Nobody else can see it. Look what I got. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Sneaky and creepy aunt. (laughs) Well, speaking of all this food, let's enjoy an intermission. You'll find our snack bar chock full of good things to eat and drink. Tasty, tempting hot dogs, thirst-quenching soft drinks, fresh, crunchy popcorn, a complete assortment of delicious candy, and a full line of cigarettes. You've plenty of time, so visit the snack bar now. A tasty treat will double your enjoyment of the show. For your convenience, We shall keep you informed of the remaining intermission time. Three minutes before the next show starts. Speaking of food. Okay. Um, So, you know, it's a, it's a a Japanese film and being the party girl that I am, the first thing I think of is sake. Nice. (laughs) So I thought I'd just bring up sake. I found a really great article on sakehub.com and it's sake 101 beginners guide. So I just kind of gleaned my information from there. It's a nice quick article if you want to learn about it. Sake is actually a form of beer. It's not a wine. Huh. A lot of people don't know that. Sake is basically a word for Japanese alcohol. So it's kind of a blanket name for alcohol. But most people that are not Japanese don't think of it that way. They think of it like, oh, you know, that's what you drink when you go and get Japanese food. You get sake. But yeah, the way it's brewed and fermented and whatnot is a lot more similar to beer than anything else. It's made from steamed rice, koji water, and yeast. Cheaper grades of sake, distilled alcohol is sometimes also added but the quality of each ingredient does affect the finished product. The first step in brewing sake is to prepare the rice. After the rice is collected, it's milled to remove the outer shell. This is called rice polishing, which is essential in determining the quality of the final brew. There are different types of sake. Uh, The highest quality brews are made with the more polished rice grains. 
top quality premium sake will start with rice polished up to 50% of its original size and standard brands are only polished up to about 70%. The production is uh, called Koji. So yeah, after it steams, some of the rice is brought into the brewery's Koji Muro. The Koji Muro is a room strictly designed with the perfect conditions for producing Koji. The rice is spread out on a table and the koji is drizzled on top and the koji quickly gets to work by breaking down the starches from the rice into sugar. And the process usually takes a couple of days. Yeah, it's just a fascinating process. Definitely check out the article. It's a fun, quick read. It doesn't take too long. And you'll learn a little bit more about the Japanese culture. Cheers. If you go back in our archives, I believe we talked about sake when we did uh i think it was cowboy bebop oh hmm. well you know my brain is mush so there you go remix <laughs> i could be wrong it, it might have been something else but definitely one of when we were doing something from japan in the past mm -hmm. we got into some detail in that one about the proper preparation of sake so that might be worth checking out too mm-hmm all right, let's jump back into this because the next person that dies, I believe, is gorgeous. She looks into a, a mirror. Again, we're kind of the seven death idea here. She's pretty. So she looks in a mirror and the mirror like cracks and like the cat uses the mirror to look into her. You know, this is shades of a last episode where we talked about Hellraiser bloodline, where they use mirrors to possess somebody. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when we were talking about that? Oh, yeah. 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 And I told the story about the guy who freaked out over my mirror ball in my house. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it kind of looked a little bit like that, although it's a little bit more implied. Mm -hmm. And then no sooner does that happen while that's going on. Sweet dies she's like trying to fix a light i think she's on a ladder and pillows and mattresses end up starting to fall on top of her mm -hmm. and she's smothered under these pillows and mattresses which i don't understand how that fits with her name but maybe i'm missing something maybe, maybe soft and sweet yeah that she's comforting or something i don't know sure sure <laughs> why not nothing else makes sense in this film so yeah. The special effects with the mirror with Gorgeous's face being slowly peeled away and there's flames behind it. And then we look and we see that she's all on fire and flames. Like an, a lot of the special effects in this film are painful to participate in because the, <laughs> the director seemed to to want to do something with this childlike approach. But this was one of the special effects that I actually thought, like, that's cool. Like, it looked cool. Mm -hmm. Definitely looks like it was not done with a an impressive budget, but it was cool, I thought. I thought the breaking of the mirror was cool. I was not as big a fan of, like, the pieces of her face falling off and being animated. I wasn't as into that part. But who knows? Check it out and let us know what you think. The series of deaths happen mostly when a girl is left alone. Mm -hmm. So some of the other girls go to try to find out what happened to Sweet, leaving Melody alone. And Melody then is playing the piano and I think going through some sort of memory episode about having to 
practice all the time, which is directly from the 11 year old daughter who said that practicing the piano made her feel like the piano was going to eat her fingers because she was practicing so hard. And that's exactly what the piano does. Yep. Yeah. Melody was separate from them and she starts playing this super annoying tune that we hear over and over and over and over and over again throughout this whole thing. And I was kind of hoping it did eat her hands, but the piano (laughs) goes beyond eating her hands. First, it chops off her fingers and then the fingers continue to play the piano even after the severed fingers do. And then it chops off her hand and then slowly the piano ends up eating all of her. Yeah, it's weird. And gross. It's weird. <laughs> I mean, the, the piano completely chomps her body. Isn't right after that when the body parts start floating around and and yes. Yeah, which is weird and random and look like it should have been an anime film rather than a film film. But okay. Meanwhile, upstairs we've got Gorgeous, who is now wearing this wedding gown that had been the aunt's. This plus like a diary starts to reveal the backstory here of the aunt just waiting and waiting and waiting after the end of the war for this man who was pledged to marry her to come back. And he never did. Whole Miss Havisham thing. Yeah. Yeah. Although Miss Havisham is like actually jilted in Great Expectations. Like she is pissed at men because of that this is like different this is she's just still waiting and expecting that he's gonna come back and he just never comes back watching the film this part of it didn't come through as like this is the whole idea of the film it definitely comes more as a like okay now we know the backstory of why the aunt is the way she is but Reading through interviews, it's apparent that this is sort of the crux of the film, that this is the source of the horror, is that the aunt is still dealing with this traumatic experience of losing her fiancé and the devastation in the wake of World War II and Hiroshima in particular. The director is from the Hiroshima prefecture and lost most of his friends. Mm -hmm to the dropping of the bomb and she resents these young girls who were born after the war happened and have no memory of Hiroshima and that's sort of the tension and it shows up in other horror films like the tension between old people and young people in either direction either young people being afraid or disgusted by old people or old people taking out their sense of revenge on the young films like Halloween, where young teenagers who are caught having sex get murdered because of it for just being young and fruitful. I think understanding the film as primarily about this resentment and sort of an ambivalence that she wishes she were young like they were and wishes that she could do it again without this trauma but at the same time feels like she needs them to go through that experience like she wants them to understand what it was 
mm-hmm. and that the director had this feeling with his own daughter and is putting that into the film. I feel like it's a really important part of the film that unfortunately doesn't come through at all because no, in between these really chaotic and absurd death scenes. I thought it was pretty blatant and obvious. In fact, at one point, the giant head, or at least the giant mouth of Gorgeous, tells us this, like explains this whole thing to them. And then everybody tells Kung Fu to kick her. Yeah. <laughs> or actually the cat, I guess the, the cat painting. Yeah. And then the whole house floods with water or blood. I'm not sure. But I wouldn't say this thing didn't have a have a zero budget here because stuff is actually happening and then it cuts back to togo yeah meanwhile back at the ranch (laughs) he's like you know caught in traffic and he's like (laughs) eating ramen and like eventually he like has some comment about bananas i don't know what that was all about like i don't know the how this is like the dreamiest guy of every teenage girl. I don't know. And as a matter of fact, there's a whole fantasy sequence where they're like, oh, he will rescue us. He's the knight in shining armor. And there's this this like fantasy sequence where he comes riding on a horse. Like, yes. throwback to our Barbie discussion. It's weird. I don't understand what dude's appeal is, though, because he looks like he's 35. And they're supposedly like 11. Um. I didn't think they were that young. We think they're maybe 17. 17. Okay, that's good. That's our guess. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this guy looked like he was in his 30s. So, you know, is this a hot for teacher kind of thing or, you know, what's going on with that? Clearly is. Like they make (laughs) no, they, they, they go, they say that over and over again. Yeah. They almost talk about like, yeah, when you hook up with him, like they they don't say it in exactly those words, but they keep saying, you know, once he gets here, you know, you can go off with him, you know? Right. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about this, like when this film was recommended to me, the person said that the film is a queer film and that it's all about the erotic tension between these teenage girls and there's a moment close to the end of the film, like where we are, where um, one of the girls is just naked, just like, like we, you know, completely nude. And that feels very uncomfortable that, you know, she's a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I never got the sense that part of the reason why Togo seems like such a lame object to attach your desire to is because it's not really about him it's more about these girls kind of sharing a sexual coming of age experience together Hmm. i'm not sure i buy this interpretation but i'm just sharing sharing with you an alternative theory about why togo is so lame (laughs) when it comes to this film it's so like throwing everything at the wall like this could have been a scary film mm-hmm. had they like taken a lot of this stuff out and just made it much more sparse it could have been terrifying but it's not and they threw so much at the wall that i think you can read just about anything into it so yeah <laughs> you know for some people sure, it probably is a, a queer coming of age film for other people it could be something entirely different but you know 
what vibes I get off of this. I get Casino Royale 1967 vibes off of this. (laughs) (laughs) And you know how much I hate that film. So I got to say, ultimately, this is a thumbs down for me. Yeah. I have watched it one time. I'm never going to watch it again. I'm only glad that I watched it because so many people talk about how great this film is. I would say that if you want to watch a really good Japanese horror film, you know, save it for Kuroneko or save it for Onibaba or Ringu. Those are much better, in my opinion, Japanese horror films. I feel like this should have been anime and not a film. It just everything about it screamed that this should have been animated, not a film. It was uh, an interesting ride. Not a fan, not, not, I, yeah, I'm not a fan. There, there are too many things in there that they just didn't make sense. That could have made sense if they would have worked a little harder at it. Um, and you're right. Like it would have been scarier if they would have left some of the corny stuff out. I think you're right. As an anime, it might've worked. It might've worked better as an anime. Yeah. Yeah. I, I perfect, perfect, you know, story and, and kind of format uh, for anime for sure but just as a, it's almost like they took something anime and tried to make a film out of it but the special effects just didn't do it justice so it just looked like a bad cheesy movie Japanese movie from the 70s that tried to be scary but it wasn't I'm gonna give it a thumb sideways <laughs> and the reason is I I do think it's really thought-provoking and and curious and interesting to think to view it as a film that is trying to be totally self-aware it breaks the fourth wall all over the place the subject is trying to tackle about you know dealing with trauma post-world war ii is is just interesting for a horror film even if you feel like it lands somewhere between being kind of not clear enough or you know too blatantly obvious like Mm -hmm. i i it's still an interesting subject to tackle what i will say is the person who recommended this to me wanted me to play it at the hopkins center and said it's a fun film it's a it's like a horror comedy and it is not any of those things it's not a fun film and it's not funny and it's also not really horrifying it's it's sort of in this other category and for that reason I haven't seen anything like this. And at this point, having seen so many movies, I got to give a film at least half a thumb for at least being different. Like it really being Mm -hmm. like unexpected, going in different places than I thought being over the top. I just ultimately felt like it wasn't, it wasn't a fun movie. And that's the whole reason why it has the cult following. So I don't understand the cult following. I don't think the movie is fun, but I was glad I saw it. I will tie this back to what I said about Frogman earlier. There was a uh, a reviewer for the Austin Chronicle, Richard Whitaker of the Austin Chronicle. In his review, he said, quote, there's surprisingly little to recommend House as a film, but as an experience, well, that's a whole other story. So <laughs> I think that's a... That sums it up. Yeah. Pretty good yeah. summation here. Don't go in expecting to see a film that's worth seeing but you might go into it for the experience maybe take some mushrooms first i don't know 
it might be more interesting that way. Yeah, I was thinking about gummies, but yeah, mushrooms gummies would work. work. Yeah. yeah, mushrooms would make it crazy. Yeah, and now I want to go watch Jaws because what they were trying to do was make Jaws. Well, <laughs> I gotta gotta go back to the videotape. <laughs> I mean, Jaws is unassailably great. We will have maybe we'll do that on the show sometime. That would be fun. But until we get around to that, I just want to remind people to let your friends know about this. We get out there one way and one way only, and that's by word of mouth. So please tell someone else about the podcast. If you want to talk to us directly, you can write to us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, and the number eight podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off. You're looking at the one hour where I had two hands.